0: A listener, production.
1: Self-control would be the process of controlling and guiding your behavior and making good decisions and so on. Willpower refers to the energy that goes into it. What enables people with good self-control to do better is that it works on habits. It's not the heroic single act you know, of resisting some terrible temptation. People with good self-control, they use it for breaking bad habits and forming good habits. And then life runs along very smoothly.
0: I'm Maggie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. The enduring theme of my next guest's work is why people do stupid things. He is a social psychologist, a global thought leader, a scientist and a researcher, and one of the most published psychologists in the world, with over 650 publications and 40 books. Apart from trying to understand why people do stupid things, Dr. Roy Baumeister is known for groundbreaking research on self-esteem, self-control, motivation, the self and free will, just to name a few and he is currently Professor of Psychology at the University of Queensland. So why do we do stupid things? And what is it that can stop us from doing stupid things? Is it, as the title of this podcast suggests, self-control? I'm keen to find out more and understand what's behind the research and the surprising results. Thanks for joining me today, Roy. I've been an avid follower of yours since reading your early work, on self-esteem. Can you start with that early research and what you learned about the self-esteem movement?
1: Right. Uh, Self-esteem was uh, just coming into uh, international prominence when I was a student. So I got interested in that. I learned a fair amount uh, from my readings and then from my own data collection, my laboratory studies about people, how they differ between high and low self-esteem. They approach life differently. People with high self-esteem are looking to succeed and to add new glories and gain new uh, successes and achievements and so on. People with low self-esteem are mostly trying to protect themselves against failure. So it's a different orientation. I remember walking across a public square in Amsterdam with a colleague when they were playing chess with those giant uh, figures on... Uh, chess board that was built into the plaza, you know, the guys were moving them around and other people were watching and so on. And my colleague said, why would anyone do that? And I said, well, it's a great way to, to test your skills and um, maybe look good. You know, you take on whoever happens to be there and so on. Uh, but she said, but there's such a chance that you look stupid. What if you make a big mistake in front of all those people <laughs> to be that kind of captures The high versus low uh, self-esteem approach, the folks who were doing that uh, were oriented towards success, uh, toward uh, taking a chance. Uh, Because if you have high self-esteem, you think you can take chances and things will turn out well. People with low self-esteem are more concerned that things will go badly and the first goal is to protect yourself against failure. Now, this sort of difference is real and was studied very much. The idea that self-esteem produces a lot of benefits, uh, this was very seductive too, but I fear the data didn't really uh, back us up and I became discouraged by this. Uh, The self-esteem movement was the idea that we could just raise everybody's self-esteem and it will solve a lot of people's personal and societal problems. Uh, the, the California task force to increase self-esteem. Uh, those people thought it was going to help solve problems of uh, drug addiction and teen pregnancy and would even going to help balance the state's budget because they said uh, people with high self-esteem get better jobs, earn more salaries, pay more taxes, and so the state's <laughs> revenue will go up. Well, it didn't, it didn't work out so well. It was an honest mistake because self-esteem is correlated with a lot of positive things. People who've had successful lives have higher self-esteem than people who have screwed up and who are, are, are failures. But it seems self-esteem is more a result than a cause. So that's why I became discouraged uh, over that. It, it's still interesting to study how they think differently and how they act differently and how they approach social situations differently. But if you really want to make people's lives better, uh, self-control is much more potent that way Lots of studies show self-esteem measured early leads to long-term improvements later on, that uh, people with good self-control uh, do better at school, do better in work, uh, they have They're more popular with their friends, they have better relationships, they're less likely uh, to be drug addicts or cigarette addicts, Uh, they're less likely to be unemployed, uh, to be arrested, Uh, they have better mental health and physical health, and they actually live longer. That's a really good uh, (laughs) set of benefits.
0: Totally compelling reason to to develop that. So your international bestseller is called Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength. I just adore this book. I've got about 10 copies on my shelf that I regularly oh, give to people. Because bless your heart, I, thank you. Such a fan. And I've given it actually to elite sports people and my children in their teenage years, all sorts of things. I've tried to be a parent that elicits self-control in others. However, I know it's not my strongest muscle. I'm curious, are willpower and self-control simply the same thing? Can you define them or differentiate those? two terms for us.
1: Yes, uh, self-control would be the process of controlling and guiding your behavior and making good decisions and so on. Willpower refers to the energy that goes into it. We resisted using that term for a long time, uh, even though we started to find that it, it sure looked like there was an energy behind it. But when I started that line of research, energy models, I used to joke, energy models are so out of fashion in psychology, we're not even against them anymore. But uh, this was in the early 90s. Uh, Right about that time, there was a big movement of biological thinking into psychology with gene studies and brain studies and so on. And so then energy became more plausible. I mean, life itself is an energy process. Uh, And so it takes more energy to to do effective self control. Uh, The kind of finding that we found over and over again was that after people exert self control on one task, if we challenge them with a different self-control task completely unrelated conceptually but also drawing on self-control will they do worse at the second so it looks like some of their energy some of their willpower was drained away and they didn't have enough to succeed as well at the second task compared to people who who had skipped the first task
0: is this about glucose depletion something as simple as a physiological response in your study or is it an and with a psychological depletion? I'm just curious about how you measured those in terms of energy and willpower.
1: Are you put your finger on a, a crucial question. Uh, I, I can't go along with the word simple <laughs> because anytime <laughs> it turns out in research you're trying to mix the mind and the body, things become complicated very fast. I'm a psychologist, and I was just using it as a mental energy, uh, sort of as a metaphor. Uh, But then we stumbled by accident on findings that uh, getting something to eat in the middle of the the study uh, would overcome the depletion effects, would seemingly restore the energy. So we started reading about uh, glucose. Now, the glucose part is outside of my normal expertise, and other scientists find the same thing, and others don't. And there's a lot of arguments about the glucose part. It seems very reliable to me, and it's it's clear that it's part of the story. Uh, but again, anytime you mix mind and body, there's going to be plenty of things going on. So I won't say as a simple solution that glucose is willpower or anything like that, but. Uh, There's definitely an overlap. I I think pretty much every study we've ran, if we successfully deplete people's willpower with the first task and then give them, what we settled on doing was giving them a a glass of lemonade. We ran a lot of these in Florida where it's hot, and people are glad to have lemonade. And we would mix the lemonade either with sugar or with a diet sweetener. And they both taste good, and people are equally happy and, 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 and so on. But the sugar would wipe out the depletion effect whereas the lemonade with a diet sweetener would not, that they would still be depleted. So I advise my students, uh, before your final exam, you should have a real Coke, not a diet Coke. Uh,
0: (laughs) And and that's done in experiments, so it's an evidence-based piece of advice there. That's fantastic. Yes, yes. over and over. So your research proved that Self-control and willpower actually had, and you mentioned them earlier, really significant impacts in so many areas. Could you just cover those again for me? The value or the impact of being able to utilize self-control and willpower?
1: Uh, Yes. So people with better self-control which we often measure by questionnaire or sometimes by teacher ratings of children. There are a couple other ways you can use a behavioral measure, you know, like the marshmallow test or, or whatever. By whatever measure, people who score higher on self-control do better in many phases of life. The students will get better grades. Workers will uh, perform better, will earn higher salaries. They're less likely to do immoral things like uh, taking credit for others' work or uh, stealing office supplies. They're less likely to be arrested, lower crime rates, less likely to develop addiction sorts of problems. I had a big study that uh, kids, when they were rated at nine years old, were less likely to be smokers and less likely to be unemployed as adults. Uh, 15 years later, if they'd been rated by their teachers as having better self-control in class, they're more popular, both better lasting relationships. Even your partner is happier if you have higher self-control. Uh, So before you get married, you should uh, definitely use one of our questionnaires (laughs) and the other person to see if uh, this is going to be a suitable partner.
0: So the question goes then, is it intrinsic? Is it part of our biological makeup as we emerge into the world? Or do we have a certain set level of self-control that we're born with and then we can improve it or deplete it?
1: Uh, Most of these things are a mixture of... uh, genetic uh, inclination and, and learning and training. We definitely have shown that you can improve your self-control with lab studies. We have people perform self-control exercises for typically two weeks. uh, And then we test them on self-control in some way. That's completely different from what they exercised. And they do better at least after some delay Mm. to me, self-control is like a muscle. This is an analogy I keep coming back to. And so, like a muscle, after you use it, it's tired and it doesn't work as well. But also, like a muscle, if you exercise it regularly, it gets stronger. Uh, if you know people, say, who've served in the military, uh, they often have very good habits of discipline and they often look down on mere civilians as... as. Uh, undisciplined and unregulated and with some justification. The same goes with uh, if you've been heavily involved in some religious activity. It Turns out religious people generally have better self-control um, because most religions support moral behavior, which depends on self-control. And indeed de- support self-control per se, but the the outcome is clear. I mean it could be the sense that that God is always watching you. It could be that Being part of a religious community, other people are always watching you, so you can't go too far off the rails. It also may be that it exercises the muscle, the discipline of praying every day or meditating. Uh, going to church. These are are things that uh, serve as good exercises to build up self-control. So we don't really know what it is about religion that improves it. And I'm not religious myself, but I, I certainly respect all the positive things religion has done uh, for society. So for people who are religious, uh, you know, that's something something to benefit with.
0: And this idea then that self-control is more than just restraining ourselves, although that's a part of it, it it sounds to me like it's about creating habits where we don't deplete our energy by creating the habitual activities that allow us to have more energy to do other goals. I've probably put that in a clunky way, but I'd love to just explore that quickly. Oh, That's a key point,
1: Maggie, and it's uh, indeed something that... Uh... Was not there in my early thinking about this and but after about 15 or 20 years there was a, a a big change and we realized that what enables people with good habitual self-control or good trait self-control to do better is that it works on habits it's not the heroic single act of uh, you know of resisting some terrible temptation or whatever when i use the example of of, of, of students uh, you might think why do people with good self-control get better marks? Well, You might think it takes discipline to stay up all night and finish that uh, paper and get it in on time. But <laughs> no, the people with good self-control don't have to stay up all night because they don't leave it till the last minute. It's developing good work habits, good study habits. And habits are something that you do fairly automatically. So you don't need the self-control or the free will or the decision-making to do it. For example, if you take up an exercise program, at first it takes a lot of self-control to get yourself together and make yourself go do that and work out and sweat and all that stuff. Uh, But after you've done it on a daily basis for a couple of months, it becomes a habit and it takes much less self-control. The human mind is really beautifully designed for things to become habitual and automatic Uh, And I think it's because of this that using your self-control is costly, even I think in a biological sense, it uses up the energy uh, that the body needs for other things. Uh, So people with good self-control, they they use it for breaking bad habits and forming good habits, and then life runs along uh, very smoothly.
0: Okay. So just coming to the end of this conversation before I speak to you in our next episode, I could talk for hours with you on this, and I think it's just important to send anybody who's listening straight to the book to gain more of an insight into the concept of willpower and self-control. I think it's fundamental to all our lives in every part. But at work, what would your tips be for the listeners to think about strengthening the muscle of self-control so that allows them to also gain some willpower, especially in the world of work. Have you got some ideas for the how we can go about this?
1: Yes, certainly. One thing is that as the day wears on, especially if there are a lot of demands on you, your willpower will will gradually get reduced over the course of the day. So if you've had a good sleep and a good breakfast, then you're probably at your best uh, in the morning, whereas at the end of a long day, you won't realize it, but your willpower is depleted. Uh, your self-control and not be good. And the same energy, this is a crucial finding, is used for decision-making, for making rational decisions. Now, uh, when people are depleted, they will still make decisions, but they make them more impulsively. They don't think through everything's. Their decisions are more biased. Uh, they don't compromise and integrate things as well. Uh, so the quality of decisions will go down. And you won't realize this yourself. You don't really feel it. Be aware that that's what happens. Uh, as I said, rest and sleep uh, and food uh, are important for maintaining the body and, and restoring uh, your willpower. Uh, so that's important. And then if you want to build things up, well, you do exercises. I often get asked around New Year's, uh, <laughs> oh, how could people do better with their New Year's resolutions? Uh, New Year's resolutions mostly all take self-control because they're ways of, of changing the self. I think they fail because if you make five of them, you're trying to do five different things at once and each, the energy you put into one of them takes away from the energy available for others. Now I struggle over this because I believe in self-improvement. It's a great way to live your life. Uh, so I don't want to say don't make res- New Year's resolutions. Uh, but my my solution is to do them sequentially. Start with the easiest. If you're making five New Year's resolutions One is, let's have an easy one, like you're going to make your bed or you're not going to swear in front of the children or something like that. Uh, And another is a more difficult one, like quitting smoking or something like that. Well, start with the easy one and just do that until you succeed at it. Meanwhile, work takes demands too that fluctuate. So when you're engaged in an all-out battle at work or uh, fighting for some deadline, this is not the time to work on improving your language in front of the children or, <laughs> or whatever, make it easy on yourself then. But when work is maybe not so demanding, then that's a time to do these exercises uh, that can strengthen, improve yourself and make your life all around better.
0: They're fantastic, really practical tips for everyone. And thinking about self-control and willpower at the heart of how we actually organise our lives and what we can do to make it a bit easier to gain more willpower so we can chase down those goals that are important to us. So I just love this conversation. I could, as I said, talk for a long time to you about this, but it's a taste. It's an interest point. And I want to thank you so much for sharing self-control and willpower and what that looks like for us all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margie. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalove. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.